Let us pray. Father, on this first Sunday of Lent, as we hear of Jesus tested in the wilderness, we believe that all Holy Scripture is written for our learning. And therefore, ask now by your Holy Spirit, Father, that we would so hear, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest this, your holy word, that we would be changed more and more to be like Jesus in our own suffering and temptations and trials, and that this would be for the sake of the world. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to be seated. In the midst of our great trials, there is even greater news. There is good news in the midst of our trials. Many of you know the story from my family this week. For those who don't, just in brief, you should just ask someone in the pew. I'm sure someone knows next to you. But my wife, Monica, last week, a week ago, helping leading the student a ministry retreat uh, fell into a ravine, catastrophically broke her lower leg, right leg. I say catastrophically because the surgeon, after the second surgery, kept emphasizing this is a really, really, really bad break. And this is the guy they bring in for the breaks that no one else can handle. So just to set perspective, a crazy hard week of pain and suffering, and yet the joys of a community gathering around, and the joys of pain doctors and staff and meal trains and a community at prayer. But that's been the week we've faced, and today, praise God, she is discharged from hospital this afternoon. Praise the Lord. And you're thinking, what are you doing here right now, therefore? I'm here to give testimony to what God is doing in this world. My eldest daughter, our eldest daughter is with her this morning so I can be here to share about what it is we learn from Jesus' trial here in the wilderness in Matthew 4 about our own trials that we're facing today. So if you turn with me to Matthew chapter 4 and we look at the text that Deacon Travis just read a moment ago from this story as Lent begins as we enter into this first Sunday of Lent of Jesus being tested in the desert, here's what we find. We find good news for our own periods of trial and testing. Because here's what we find in this text. that First of all, we see that Jesus is tested. Jesus himself is tested. And Jesus triumphs in the test over the enemy. But in doing so, because Jesus is tested and Jesus triumphs, our own tests and trials are therefore now transformed. As we go through tests and trials, because of all that Jesus accomplished in his own testing in the wilderness, we have a transformed reality in our tests, a transformed set of purposes in our tests, a transformed future hope in our testing. And so we start with the fact that Jesus was tested. I use that word tested. Verse one says he was tempted. But the better translation is tested because it's of the same form of what we see in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 2. Remember, in another period of scripture where the people of God were for 40 years in that case in the wilderness and just about to come out into the promised land, 
In Moses' final sermon speech over the community, if you ever want to read Deuteronomy, that's really one sermon. You ever think that I preach long? Read Moses' Deuteronomy sermon and you can repent of your sins. Okay, so Moses in his final sermon, before they go into the promised land, tells them why they've been 40 years in this period of wilderness wandering. And he says it is to humble you, the Lord would humble you, to test and see what is in you, whether you will follow the commands of the Lord. In other words, Israel was in the wilderness 40 years to be tested to see what's actually going on within them. Would they follow the Lord's commands? Would they be humbled and truly serve the Lord? And Jesus, in the same way, is 40 days in the wilderness being tested. Who is this man? What is in him? And how will he obey the commands of God? And so it is for all testing. Testing is about temptations and trials are all about us going into periods to say, what is really going on within us? What are we really made up of? And you often see the truth of a person when they're actually in the hardest place. We're pretty good at putting on veneers and masks, but then temptation and trials comes and you get the full picture. Here's what we see interestingly in Jesus in this testing moment. First though, we need to recognize the fact that Jesus is tested is gonna teach us something about our own testing because first of all, the fact that Jesus, the son of God is tested must, we've gotta grab a hold of this, okay? The son of God is tested. Remember the first temptation, the third temptation, the devil, second, first and second temptation of the devil, if you are the son of God, if you are the son of God? Well, the truth is he is the son of God. But can you wrap your heads around the fact that the Son of God, the eternal second person of the Trinity, and now become flesh, is being tested? He's being put into this severe, hard trial, pain, agony, suffering. And you know what's fascinating about the fact that the Son of God's being tested? His Father and the Spirit sent him there. Mark in his gospel is even clearer in Mark chapter 1 that he says the Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness. Jesus just came out of the waters of baptism, declared, this is my Son, the Beloved, in whom I'm well pleased. And what happens? They throw a big party? No, the Spirit drives him into 40 days of hell on earth. 40 days of deep and horrible suffering in the wilderness. You want to say, God the Father did that on purpose? He did. And we need to grab a hold of this reality. The fact that the Son of God goes into this period of severe trial and testing is going to put to death any sense of moralizing of suffering in our world. Here's what I mean by that. We must, because of this reality of Jesus, the perfect, beautiful, spotless Son of God, being put in a period of temptation and suffering and deep distress, you must never say, I am suffering because I've done something wrong. That person over there is suffering. I wonder what they did. Oh, look at all that horrible thing going on in that nation. Well, you know what happens. You know, they're just obviously not good people. That's not what the scriptures teach us about suffering. The best and the most beautiful and the most perfect go into the very worst moments of suffering. We need to recognize that what God is doing with Jesus is treating him as a son. It's what Proverbs 3 says. It's what Hebrews 12 says. That in our difficulties and challenges, as hard as it is to face, this is how God treats his children. Because children need to be formed. Children need to be shaped. And we do not get shaped without adversity. If we get spared from adversity, 
then I guess it means we're not children of God. We're illegitimate. Because a father cares to form his child. Listen to these words from J.I. Packer about the formation of a royal child. I love this. It's this picture of Proverbs 3, Hebrews chapter 12, that we're being grown, we're being treated as sons, we're being disciplined to grow into the people we're called to be. Packer says this, he says, royal children, royal children have to undergo extra training. Royal children have to go under extra training and discipline, which other children can escape. In order that these royal children can be fit for their high destinies. It is the same with the children of the king of kings. The clue to understanding all his dealings with them is to remember that throughout their lives, he is training them for what awaits them and chiseling them into the image of Christ. That in all of our life, what God is doing most especially in our trials, is forming us for future glory, chiseling us more and more into the image of his son. That's why Paul says in Romans 5, I believe that anyone who goes through serious seasons of suffering can so identify with what the apostle Paul is saying here when he says not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. We rejoice in our sufferings knowing that the suffering produces endurance and that endurance produces character and that character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. The Son of God suffered testing. It reframes the whole way we see suffering and trial. But also... He suffers. Let's be clear that he suffers. Verse two says he was hungry. I like that Matthew takes the time just to be clear. He's in the desert 40 days, 40 nights without food and drink. And and he just has to add this line and he's hungry just in case somebody might read the story of Jesus and think, well, you know, he is the son of God. So clearly, you know, he doesn't really feel hunger. I mean, it's kind of like a bit of a, I'm kind of a human being kind of experience. No, the incarnation of the son of God that he left his throne and became actual flesh, human flesh. That in the words of Philippians chapter two, that he emptied himself, that self-emptied himself into a full human life, not denying his divinity, but putting aside all his power and strength and becoming truly a servant, even to die on a cross. This picture of the Son of God becoming flesh and therefore truly experiencing what it is to suffer a human life. He was hungry. It changes the way we understand our suffering when we know that our God knows exactly what we're going through. Have you been hungry? So has Jesus. Have you been poor? So has Jesus. Are you in a position of deep, excruciating pain? Jesus has been there. Have you been betrayed and spat upon and hated? So is Jesus. Have you been dying? So has Jesus. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, the German prophet and priest and pastor who was standing up against Nazi Germany, who's about to die in a Nazi concentration camp, his final words were, only the suffering of Christ helps. Knowing that God knows. 
Jesus is tested. But not only is he tested, the son of God suffering, but he triumphs. I love verse 10, be gone, Satan. It's not sort of a backhanded, you know, just get out of here. It's a declaration of victory. Be gone, Satan. It's an imperative. He has won and overcome this testing. You know, it's fascinating that Jesus standing up to Satan, going toe-to-toe with Satan, has done what Adam couldn't do. Adam failed the test. He's done what Israel couldn't do. Israel failed the test. And he's done what you and I can't do. We, on our own strength, cannot pass the test. When When the devil would come at us, Without this victory coming, we would be completely lost, just like Adam and Israel. But Jesus overcomes. Jesus is victorious. Satan has been put aside. You know, it's interesting, one of the things in the liturgy that we say, which I love every Sunday in the Eucharistic prayers, it says that Jesus trampled down hell and Satan under his feet. I mean, that is worthy of a tattoo or something. I mean, Jesus trampled down hell and Satan under his feet. We say it every Sunday. Now, of course, it's referring to the ultimate victory on the cross. Yes, right? Jesus on the cross, bearing the sins of humanity, bearing everything that was wrong in us, the punishment of sin, took that sin upon himself, that our righteousness, his righteousness could be placed on us. We would be forgiven. He rises from the dead. Sin is done. Death is done. The enemy has lost his power. But interestingly, even here in the desert, Jesus is already triumphing. It's not just at Calvary that Jesus triumphs. He's already beginning to triumph here in the desert. Do you know why? Because from this point on in Matthew's gospel and in all the other gospels, after the showdown in the desert with the devil, suddenly the devil looks like he's losing his grip. You know, everywhere Jesus goes all of a sudden after this moment, the devil literally starts popping out of people. And the effects of the devil keep getting pushed aside. Sin, death, suffering, heresy, brokenness, despair, they're all being pushed back. It suddenly looks like, wow, Satan, who looked like he had a pretty firm grip on the world, is losing his grip. Why? Jesus explains it a few chapters later in Matthew chapter 12. You know, I love when Jesus is really getting things moving. His his enemies, as they try to come at him, get ridiculous in their arguments. So in Matthew chapter 12, it goes to complete ridiculousness when they're trying to explain, okay, well, we don't like Jesus. We want to kill him. And yet he keeps doing all these like amazing holy man things like casting out demons. So, well, what do we do with that? Oh, I know. Here's the solution. Jesus is casting out demons, Matthew 12, because he's in league with the devil. And you're like, my goodness, you are desperate, aren't you? I mean, Jesus just turns on them. I can imagine just a smile on his face and says, really, that's the best you can give me? Because the truth is, if you see the effect of Satan losing his grip, then it means that clearly someone has overpowered Satan. He says this in verse 29. He says, if someone's going to come into a strong man's house and plunder his house, he's got to first bind the strong man. If Satan, the strong man, is suddenly losing his authority on earth, it seems, right before their eyes, it seems that someone must have come and already bound up the strong man, tied up the strong man, defeated the strong man. And that's exactly what happened in the wilderness. It's a foretaste of the ultimate victory that comes at the cross over Satan. Jesus has done what no one could do before. He has overcome the devil. He stood against him. And suddenly that devil is shown to be without ultimate power and authority. 
Jesus has triumphed. And it's important for us to remember as we face trials because so often we can easily get drawn into trials and think, well, now, now I guess it, you know, Jesus did his trial in the desert. Now, now it's my turn. Okay, Jesus, you, you triumphed. All right, Lord, I got to triumph. I got to triumph. I got to triumph. And we take it all on ourselves. And the truth is, even with the victory of Christ on our own, we cannot on our own triumph. You know, I found myself all through this week doing a billion things. Those of you who've gone through something like what we're going through with our whole life being turned upside down and changing. And I mean, I did not know all the things that need to be done in working with a family member and caring for a family member who's suffering deep pain, advocating with doctors and, and trying to get the right pain specialist and then figure out how to bring home and medical equipment and all the planning. I mean, it just boggles the mind. And again, I'm so thankful for how much the church has gotten around and just said, hey, you focus on what you need to focus on. And so I thought I was holding it all together. I thought I was doing really, really well. You know, I was just, I was, I was, I'm doing this. I'm triumphing in this trial. And then Wednesday night I went home and I yelled at the dogs like I have never yelled in my life. Thankfully, I wasn't yelling at the children or my wife or the doctors or anyone else. But the indication suddenly came forward for me. I was like, you know what? I'm not handling this as well as I think I'm handling this. There is a deep reservoir of inability and therefore guilt within me. Immediately as I screamed at the dogs, my kids all sort of took a step back and were like, what is wrong with dad? What, what was my natural thought? Yep, there I am failing the test. I, I, I can't do this. And the truth of Jesus' victory is yes, you and I cannot do this on our own because he has instead done it for us. He has triumphed where no man or woman can triumph so that we can enter into that triumph that we can stand in his triumph. It's not about you and I trying to strive to triumph. Oh, I'm gonna make this happen in the name of Jesus. No, we stand in the triumph of Jesus. He has won the victory over the devil and we will fail and we will fall and we will be forgiven. But oh, how he has triumphed. Oh, how he has won. You know, I love the fact that there's such confidence in the New Testament that, you know, James chapter four, resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Why? Because you've just figured out how to be strong. No, because he is stronger. Greater is he who is in you, first John four, than he who is in the world. Jesus is tested. Jesus triumphs. And thereby, all of our trials can be reframed can be transformed. Here's what I mean. Jesus is ultimately in this enabling us and empowering us to enter into our own test. Jesus never promised us that there'd be no tests. I mean, again, he's treating us like sons and daughters, right? There's gonna be tests, we're gonna grow. He never promised us that everything was just gonna be fine. Oh, I become a Christian and my life just got so much easier. I think in reality, I became a Christian, my life got a lot harder, more joyful, more ultimate, but harder. It's a lot easier just to go your own way. Jesus never promised us no trials, but he promised us that he'd teach us how, in his name, to get through and thrive in our trials. And here's what I mean. Jesus in the desert 
is ultimately helping us understand what's really at the root behind every trial. And this is what we need to remember. That underneath every trial, there's a particular temptation that the devil is bringing us. There's a particular thing the devil wants to do to us. And if we can understand it, if we can decode that, then suddenly we can be empowered in Jesus' name to move forward. I, I use the decoding language because I think of Alan Turing and the Enigma machine back in World War II. Some of you have seen that movie from a few years ago with Kent Benedict Cumberbatch, right? The, uh, what was it called? The, uh... nobody saw it. There's a few, uh... the image, the I think I went deaf this week in the hospital. All right, so the, um, but I hear you, the, 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 the something game, the something game, spell it out in sign language, yeah. The, um, let's just keep moving forward. All right, so the, Google it. The imitation. the imitation game. All right, see, there you go. I mean, I thought that's what you were saying. I just didn't, yeah, thank you, thank you. The imitation game. Where is he going with this metaphor? All right, Alan Turing, World War II, because all the German U-boats were using a code that was seemingly uncrackable, an impossible code. They were literally sinking the Allied fleet in the Battle of the Atlantic. The the U-boats could go under, they could communicate, and there was just no way to solve the code. Alan Turing and his team of code breakers broke the code finally, and as a result, they could interpret the messages and win the war. And there's an argument that because of that code breaking, that they cut two years off the war and saved 14 million lives. And I'm thankful because my grandfather was fighting in the Battle of the Atlantic. I may not be here if it wasn't for the code breaking. The point is you break the code and suddenly you can begin to win the war. And this is the code that Jesus breaks for us in the temptation in the wilderness. That underneath each and every trial we're facing, underneath every temptation, every hardship that comes on us, here's what the devil is trying to do. He's trying to get us to stop trusting God. It's always about trust. It's always about trusting God. Look at the temptations. Verse four, when tempted to put his trust in bread, Jesus trusts his father. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. When tested to put his faith and trust in fame, because I think that's really what the jumping off the temple is about. Like the angels will catch you, everyone is gonna see it and we can avoid the crucifixion. I mean, they'll all know you're the Messiah. Just jump off the temple, fame. In the face of the temptation to trust in fame, Jesus trusts his father. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. And finally, third temptation, verse 10, facing the temptation to put his trust in power and might and strength. All the nations of the world shall be yours. Jesus chooses instead to trust his father. Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Isn't it interesting? He's always coming back to Deuteronomy with each one of those phrases. He's bringing us back to that same Deuteronomy story from Exit from, from Israel coming out of the wilderness. The point is this, that underneath every test and every trial, every challenge we're facing, it's always the question. The code is broken. It's about your trust in God. All throughout scripture, we see the stories of men and women who are being asked, will you trust God even in this? And all through our lives, the same question is being asked. Will you trust God even in this moment? This is the broken code. This is what is behind each and every trial we're facing. And in knowing it, we can press into that and we can pray, oh Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Help me trust. 
Help me trust you and put aside these things. You notice the devil has nothing to offer. All he can do is tear down. He never is saying, I've got a wonderful future for your life. He just says, let's just break down your trust in the gifts God has given. He does it in Genesis 3, did God really say? And he does it with Jesus, if you really are the son of God. And he does it with you and I in each and every moment, especially in our trials. Is God really good? Can you really trust him? And the answer, friends, because of the demonstration of his love for us on the cross, the answer is yes, we can trust him. Romans 8, verse 31 What shall we say of these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for all of us, will he not with him give us all things? Will we trust the Lord? Friends, there is in the midst of great trial, even greater news. And we find it in the story of Jesus wilderness temptation because Jesus was tested. The son got tested. He suffered like us. He triumphed. He overcame the devil. We don't have to do this on our own. We cannot do it on our own. And he's transformed our suffering and our trials. We know what it's about. We know what this test is always at root about. Will you trust God even in this? I close with this, that just last night as I was getting ready to go to bed, I noticed something kind of providential. We had this motorized chair, um, you know, the recliners delivered this week because that's what Monica's got to be in for a long time. Um, And there's only really one place in the house it fit properly with room to move around it. And so we just put it there and kind of are building a little new area for Monica in the living room. It's the only place it fits. And I thought, great, there it is. And it's so weird and it's so strange to be entering into this season. But suddenly my eye caught the fact that right above where her seat is, the only place it fits in the house is the exact spot where five years ago, she hung a piece of art that she had commissioned for me when I was turning 40. It's just a simple little wood cutting, but it's got my favorite verse of scripture on it. It's five years ago, long ago, discovered that's, that's where it's gonna live. It's the words of Psalm 20, verse seven. Some trust in chariots, some trust in horses, but our trust is in the name of the Lord our God. Isn't it just like God to five years ago, commission a piece of art for our house, have it hung in the place where the motorized recliner will only fit so that over the next months to year ahead, this is what stands above this moment. Friends, this is the root of our trials. Learning to trust the Lord, even in this, for his greater glory, that we would grow in trust and be of even more use for his mission in the world. Let us in this Lenten season, let us remember Jesus' own trials in the temptation in the wilderness. Let us learn from it. And may our trials this day and every day be transformed. Will you trust me even in this? And by faith, 
we will say, yes, Lord, we trust you. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen.